0: What a tremendous blessing to seeing this morning that we stand forgiven at the cross. If you're a Christian and you're here this morning, that is one of the uh, major identifiers for you, for us all who are believers, is that we stand forgiven at the cross. We, we stand in the grace of God. Paul speaks about the grace of God in which we stand. And so I pray this morning that as you've come here, to worship that you are confident in where you stand that you are assured by God's spirit that the love of God has been poured into your hearts by the spirit and that all of us are rejoicing in the Lord that we are here with God's people reading his words singing his praises uh, and that we are not distracted with all the things going on in our lives there are a lot of things that we could be thinking about this morning a lot of things that could distract us and Satan is really good at tempting us to do that, to not live in the moment of, that God's placed us in providentially, to be out there somewhere else in our minds. And so let's come together mentally. We're here together physically, but let's come together mentally as we continue in this worship service. If you would, please go with me in your Bibles to Romans 15, specifically verses 22 to 29. Romans 15... 22 to 29. <clears throat> we are looking at the final reflections and greetings of the apostle Paul to the Christians in Rome. He's written this letter to the believers there in Rome, entitled Romans, and <clears throat> he is now he's he's now come to the end of his letter and he's concluding it with some final reflections and some Greetings. We finished recently the last instruction section of this book. So as with any letter that we find in the New Testament, uh, there are these various sections of teaching. And you can go through Romans, and I won't do that again. I've done that several times where we talk about the different portions of teaching, the different topics and themes covered throughout the letter. And in the last portion, which runs from 14.1 to 15.13, we get Paul's instruction on unity. On the weak and the strong. The weak in faith, the strong in faith. One group tempted to despise the other. One group tempted to judge the other. And Paul has finished that in chapter 15, verse 13. And that really is the end of his letter from an instruction standpoint. The, the rest of it, the rest of 15 and all of 16, is devoted to these final reflections and greetings. These closing remarks. Last week, we talked about Paul's ministry. That was the focus of the passage last week, Paul's ministry, which ran from 15, verses 14 to 21. His priestly service as the apostle to the Gentiles. And I spoke with someone after the service last Sunday. They said, you know, I've never really thought of Paul uh, coming at his work as a priest, that, that he's out there proclaiming the gospel around the Greek-speaking world, and the Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ. And Paul is gathering up the Gentiles, as it were, and offering them back to God as, as a sacrifice of praise. That the Gentiles themselves, uh, gathered at that time, are being offered by the apostle to the Gentiles as a priest to The Lord. What a beautiful picture. And it brings to mind all of those images of sacrifice in the Old Testament. And of course, obviously, it brings to mind the fact that Jesus Christ, the high priest, went into the Holy of Holies and offered himself as the one sacrifice for sin. But there's this priestly language, and Paul sees his preaching to the Gentiles very much in that way. He explains in that section why he has written so boldly, (coughs) excuse me, why he's written so boldly in his letter uh, because he says he wants to remind them. Paul has written these sometimes stinging remarks, uh, piercing words throughout the letter to the Romans. And it could give the impression that that church is pretty messed up. They got some serious problems. And of course, like any church, they do have their problems. But Paul says that the reason he has written in the way that he has so boldly is so that he might remind them and because he is carrying out his calling and commission as the apostle to the Gentiles. In other words, Paul is saying, I have the right and I have the obligation laid upon me to speak to you in this way in order that you might be reminded of God's glorious gospel. So he does that. He explains why he has written so boldly. He rejoices in God's work. Through him in the east, he's not congratulating himself. He's not proclaiming his own achievements. He is pointing everything back to Christ. And he's saying, this is what Christ has accomplished through me in the east. As I have been working from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. As he said there in last week's passage. And finally, by way of review, Paul explains his approach to missions. He tells us at the end of the passage we looked at last week, he tells us, tells his readers what his strategy, what his approach, what his agenda is as he carries out his missionary work as an apostle. He says that it is to go where no foundation has been laid, where Christ has not already been named. So Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, is not just going to all Gentiles in general, But Paul has a very specific mission strategy, and it is that he (coughs) go to these places where Christ has not been proclaimed, where Christ is not being worshipped, where there's not a church, and Paul goes to these key strategic places in the Mediterranean, and he plants these churches. And so we get these these, uh, cities that were very important in the ancient world, cities like Ephesus or Corinth. These very significant places from which the gospel will spread out to others. So that was last week. That's what we looked at last time. This week, we come to the apostles' plans. So last week, Paul reflects on his ministry, what he's about. and This week, we're going to look at his plans, and specifically, his travel plans. Paul is leaning into the future as we come in to our text for today. He's leaning into what's next. He's opened up his heart about what it is he is about as an apostle, and now he wants to explain to the Romans where he's headed, what he's going to be doing, what is his travel itinerary in the coming days, weeks, months, and years. And over the last couple of weeks, I've been thinking about the overall impact that these personal or biographical verses should have on us. You know, we come to passages like this. It's kind of clear what the end of Romans 8 has for us, right? It's just right there. It's pretty clear what the end of Romans 3 has for us, and especially what Romans 12 has for us, because it's just simply laid out very practically in terms of instructions to us. But when we come to passages like this, we kind of might be tempted to just scratch our heads and wonder, okay, we've really come to the end of the letter. These are formalities. Uh, This is sort of the chaffy part of the letter. You know, there's a little bit here, but not all that significant for us. We're done with the teaching at this stage. So I've been thinking about what are we to glean from these verses on the whole? These words are very specific to Paul. So how should they affect us? They're very much Uh, related to his specific ministry as an apostle. We're not. We're not apostles. And his very specific travel plans way back then, 2,000 years ago, as he's carrying out his missions work. Well, there's a lot that could be said, but one way (coughs) to think about this (coughs) is (laughs) is in relation to the new year. We are, at this point, In the very early days of 2022. Just a little less than two weeks in. And whether or not you're big on the New Year's resolution thing. You know I kind of tend to be one of those New Year's resolution people. Uh, You might be one of those. Uh, You might not or you might be in principle opposed to any such silliness. Uh, Whatever the case. Whatever your feelings about New Year's resolutions. At the very least, I think given the fact that God put the, uh, the, the heavenly bodies, the stars, the moon, and the, and the sun, everything into the heavens to give us a, a sense of time, that when there's a, a transition in time, a significant one, for example, like a new year, I think at the very least, it presents us with an opportunity to recalibrate our lives. We can, of course, do this at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on a Thursday. We don't have to wait until Monday. Uh, We don't have to wait till the first of the month, and we don't have to wait until the first of the year. But when we have a transition like this, at the very least, it does give us this recalibration. It calls us, I think, to ask hard questions about our priorities, our focus, our agenda in life. And I think there is really no better time than now Right now, as we go into a new year, to draw from the example of the Apostle Paul. As we see this personal material, as we see this autobiographical material, to draw out from his example. A life consumed with the gospel. A life driven by seeing others bow before Jesus. A life devoted to God's will and God's work to the spiritual good of other people. You know, maybe when you think of the new year, you think of all your little individual devotional goals, all your little personal Bible reading plans and all the things you're gonna do for yourself, all the things we're gonna do to enhance my life, to grow my spiritual life. But I think, and that's wonderful. And we ought to be thinking along those lines, but... I think Paul reminds us, too, how much our New Year's resolutions should be tied, or our New Year's recalibration should be tied to the spiritual good of others. Not just all of our own little personal goals for life. Paul, his example, calls us to a life that does what Jesus calls for in Matthew 6 verse 33, where he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Paul is a premier example. Uh, Aside from Jesus, the perfect God-man, Paul is the premier example for us of what it looks like to live that way, to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And so as this year begins, just to there's something to throw out there, is to be inspired. Be inspired by the example of the apostle to the Gentiles. Don't let this uh, seemingly chaffy material at the end of a letter, this seemingly formal set of words, don't let this pass you by missing this premier example. Another way to say this is listen to the apostle as he charges his readers in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. You say, well, should we really be going to the Bible looking for examples? Yes! Yes! Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. God has given us examples in Scripture. The Bible is not about moral examples. It's not about heroes of the faith. The Bible is about Christ. But in his grace, Christ has given us many examples within Scripture that are worthy of our imitation. And as Paul says, he himself is one of those examples. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Reading these sections at the end of Romans is like reading a great Christian biography in condensed form, or an autobiography in condensed form. So here's my plea. Let these verses pour into you and cultivate a kingdom-oriented way of life as you go out into this new year. As you charge into 2022, Whether you are a resolution-oriented person or not, let Paul's example that we've looked at over these last couple of weeks, and that we'll see continuing even into the greetings, let that guide you and fill your heart with a kingdom-oriented way of life. So if you would at this time, go ahead and stand with me for reading God's word. Our text for today is uh, Romans 15, verses 22 to 29, but I'm going to take you back to chapter 1, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to read chapter 1, verses 8 to 15, which is linked up with this uh, closing greeting material. So chapter 1, verses 8 to 15, then we're going to go to chapter 15 and read verse 14 all the way to verse 29. So this is the Word of God. It is... Holy, and it strengthens us in every area, equips us for every good work. Let it do its work. Romans 1, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then go with me now back to, at the end, chapter 15. Paul in chapter 1, verse 16, all the way to 15, 13, gives his instruction material and then... Chapter 15, verse 14, he kind of picks up where he left off in the greeting. Verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, In the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum... I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. And now for our passage for today. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem." Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help that he would illuminate his word, that he would use this time productively, fruitfully in our lives and that we would be convicted of our sins, that we would be encouraged in the gospel and that we would have laid before us uh, an example to imitate as we see this material from Paul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for time like this in your word. We thank you for a time like this to gather and sing your praises and celebrate the Lord's Supper and pray to you corporately. (coughs) Father, we want to cultivate our own personal spiritual lives, but Lord, this is just such a wonderful thing to gather as individuals who are one in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the unity that we have in Christ as those who are part of your universal church, and we thank you for the unity that we have here as a local church, as Four Corners Church. Lord, I thank you for all that have gathered this morning. I thank you that we, uh, in your providence, have come to meditate on these divine things. In the midst of all the mundane, in the midst of all of the uh, daily distractions, all of the ways that we are turned inward towards self, towards self-fulfillment and self-satisfaction, Uh, especially in this selfishly dripping culture, Lord, we pray that our hearts would be raised up to be focused on your glory and on the good of our neighbor and specifically the good of our brother and sister in Christ. Father, we ask that this time would be fruitful for each of us, uh, that it would not just be a blanket over us, but that it would be a rifle shot into each heart that we each individually would experience the the power of your word as you, by your spirit, convict us of sin, purge us, uh, help us to, as Jesus says, pluck out the eye and cut off the hand, uh, not literally, but metaphorically in our own hearts, that if there's anything that is causing us to sin, that we would pluck that that your Spirit would empower us to pluck that from our lives. Father, we pray that we would be encouraged and assured this morning as Christians in our identity in Jesus, that we would be spurred on by the example of Paul and what he has written here to live this year for your glory and the good of our neighbor. Father, we ask that the preaching would be clear and the listening uh, would be intentional and that all of us would be edified through this time of instruction. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So this section of verses focused on Paul's future travel plans, giving us his itinerary, can be broken into two parts. Two major parts to this whole, and I haven't listed the verses because I'm going to kind of be jumping around a little bit within the passage, and you'll see what I mean in a moment. But here they are, and these are the two points for today these two parts of uh, Paul's itinerary these these really these two trips that he refers to here first is the mission to Spain and second is the money for Jerusalem that's what occupies his attention so you notice there there's nothing about Rome and that is because Rome is at the center Rome is at the center of his discussion as he's writing to the Romans. He is telling the Romans what he's going to do, i.e., the mission to Spain and the money for Jerusalem, and how that relates to them, how that will affect them. What is the relation of Paul's itinerary to these believers in Rome? So let's look first at the mission to Spain. the mission to Spain. And for that, we're going to look at verses 22 to 24. And we'll also look at 28 to 29. So this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain And to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. We'll stop there. Paul goes on after that to discuss his plans for Jerusalem. And then he picks back up in verse 28. So let's go to 28. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them, those in Jerusalem, what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So we see that Spain kind of brackets this entire passage. At the beginning, he mentions Spain, verses 22 to 24. And then in 28 to 29, he mentions Spain again. Spain. That's where Paul's eyes are set. The Iberian Peninsula the western end of the Mediterranean Sea. If you look at a map of the Mediterranean Sea, you have going west all the way up to Spain and then the Straits of Gibraltar right there, uh, separating Spain from Morocco. You, you go right through there, but that's, that's the, the Mediterranean Sea. And Paul is talking about this peninsula that comes down at the western end of the Mediterranean Sea, what the ancients called the ends of the earth, and of course, you can understand that uh, living within the Greco-Roman world, where the center really of the world at this time. Now we know that there is much going on in the east and and elsewhere. Of course, there are peoples all over the world, but for the the people living in the world into which Jesus comes, there. "...on the eastern side of the Mediterranean in Palestine, and Paul and the apostles, uh, the the world which they are writing in, the world that is known at that time around, is this Mediterranean world." And so, Spain would have been considered the ends of the earth, the ends of all of that. Paul desires to bring the gospel (coughs) to the people of Spain so that those Gentiles would also obey Christ." Remember what he says in chapter 1, verse 5. At the very beginning of the letter, he says that he has received grace. God has given him grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So what is Paul about? Paul is about exalting Christ. He's about Christ's name being exalted and believed upon. And he is about uh, this happening as individual Gentiles from all nations bow their faces, bend their knees to Christ, the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Well, that includes Spain, the furthest west. Remember last week where Paul laid out his missions approach or his agenda or strategy Drawn from Old Testament prophecy, Paul explains that his approach is to bring the gospel to the unreached, as I said at the very beginning. He's bringing the gospel where no one has laid a gospel foundation, where the gospel of Christ has not been proclaimed and Christ has not been named. And just as he has done this in the east, (coughs) from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, north of Greece, east of Italy... So from Jerusalem all the way up, Asia Minor, going across to Greece, Macedonia, and Achaia, all throughout that area, and even into Illyricum, north of Macedonia, Paul has delivered this gospel. And now, likewise, he wants to go to the west. What he has done in the eastern Mediterranean, he now wants to do in the western Mediterranean. So that's where Paul's eyes are set. That is his focus on bringing the gospel to Spain. And we really would not accept we really would not expect anything less from Paul. He's looking to the next mission. But what does this have to do with the Romans? His desire to go to Spain is he just informing them what he's about? Just so they'll know, they'll have a little information about what's going on in Paul's life. Is this just a, a, a bit of friendly conveyance of information? No. The short answer is that Rome is in the middle of all of this. Rome is in the middle between the East and the West. They are situated between the work he has done in the Eastern Mediterranean and the work he wants to do in Spain. They, the Romans, already have a strong foundation. In Rome, Christ has already been named. In fact, we remember in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So they have not only a foundation, but they have a strong foundation. Unlike Crete, for example... Or the Galatians, Paul writing to the Galatians saying, whoa, 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 what is happening there? What is going on with you guys? I'm worried about you. I'm worried about your spiritual state. And of course, in Crete, they don't have any structure. They don't have any leadership. And that's why Paul writes Titus and sends Titus there. That's not the case in Rome. They have a foundation, and in fact, they have a very strong foundation, probably going all the way back to Pentecost. So Christ has been named there. And that is why Paul has been so hindered from visiting the Roman Christians. He has had a strong desire to come to them, but has been busy. The apostle has been busy establishing churches among the unreached in the east. And I think there's something that we can get out of this. There's an implication for us here, and it's this. Personal desires have to take a back seat To God's work or God's will. And I think that's something to think about as we move into (coughs) a new year. We all have a lot of personal desires. You could make a little list, you know, a uh, a little list of all the things that you want to accomplish or that you want in life or you want to be different or you want to change or you want to work towards or whatever. Many of them, great. And, and, and it wouldn't be like writing, I want a Ferrari or anything like that. It would be something that is, you know, deeper. It's something that, that has to do with your, your genuine good. And it may even be that at the very top of that list, you've got things that you have, your personal desires for your own particular growth in the Lord. Personal desires that you have specifically that you want to meet that have to do with God, that have to do with his kingdom even. But sometimes these personal desires are not God's will. They may sound like God's will. They may seem like God's will. They may be great desires. But they're just not God's will. And so we recognize that those personal desires, no matter how good, have to be set aside or put in the back seat behind God's work, God's will. And sometimes God shows us that the work He wants us to do is not at all what we're very excited about doing. Sometimes it doesn't quite line up with our own desires. And that's when we have to trust that the Lord will grow those desires within us in accordance with His will. And oftentimes the things that God calls us to do, the work that He calls us to do, the will that He has for us is surprising we're going down one road, and all of a sudden, God just changes the road on us. And that's what he wants us to do. So personal desires have had to take a back seat to God's work for the apostle. Listen to how he, desp- he describes or expresses his desire to see the Romans. Chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, That without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you. I mean, those are strong words. He has an earnest desire, a longing, even. We don't use that word very often because it's very strong. A longing. To see these Christians. So much so that he's making constant mention of them in his prayers. Specifically praying that he might be able in God's providence. To go to them and spend time with them. We see the same thing here. Verses 22 to 24. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Because of his work in the east. But now. Since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and here, is, here it is, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Isn't that interesting? There may be desires that we have, and we talked about this back in chapter 1. There may be desires that we have that are deep, deep longings of the heart that have to do with the Lord and that we have to desire for many years before those things ever come to fruition. Before those things ever even happen. And God calls us to focus on the plow that is in front of us. To put our hands on the plow that is right there in front of us. So as Paul looks west to Spain, he sees an opportunity to go to Rome. To fulfill the desire he has had for a long time to visit these believers. Paul's desire is now finally intersecting with God's will. With God's purposes. He now will plan and sees that happening. That he would be able to go to Rome. And he gives two reasons for wanting to visit them. Two reasons are given here in verse 24. He says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Do you see those two reasons there? First, he wants to gain their support for his mission to Spain. Once again, notice this with the apostle. Notice the progress of the gospel, the salvation of the Gentiles, the glory of Christ is Paul's ultimate priority. Paul has one priority, and that is the progress of the gospel. Let me just say this to all of us. In all of our doing, in all of our desiring, in all of our goal-making, in all of our hoping, we should have one goal in life that drives everything else. And guess what? We know what that goal is. It is the glory of Christ in the progress of the gospel. That one goal should drive all of our little goals, all the little things that we're about to, in our daily lives, and in our community life as a church. All these little things under the banner of this one great ultimate priority. And that's what we see with Paul. he's, He's on mission. He's got to get to Spain. And he wants the Romans to help him get there. Paul uses a word here that is translated to be helped on my journey. And it's a word that is frequently used in the New Testament. It's one word in Greek. It's a word frequently used for aiding missionaries in these kind of missions contexts. Paul hopes for their support. And primarily, I think we are to understand here, their financial support so that he will be able to go to Spain. But probably this would also involve some, some form of escort some form of tapping into connections, any kind of hospitality that would make it possible, any kind of providing the resources needed to get to Spain, the ships and boats needed to, to do his travels, all of that packaged into this one notion of getting aid from them to be helped on my journey. Anything that would help him get to Spain. To do There, what he has done in the east. And what's interesting is that this this is one of the main reasons he lays out his gospel so thoroughly in Romans. Listen to this. This is fascinating if you think about it. We today pick up Romans and we go, man, what an amazing letter. This is so packed. Look at at the effect it's had on church history. And we can tend to see it as this just dangling treatise. This, This dangling bit of of, of systematic theology maybe, this, this great work of, of doctrine just, just to be studied out there in midair. But that is not why Romans was written. Partially, of course, Paul, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants to articulate the fullness of his gospel. And Paul sees beyond simply writing to the Romans, I'm sure. But what we see here is that Paul is Delivering his doctrine to the Romans. He's expressing what it is that he teaches. So that he might gain the support of the Romans for a mission. He wants to lay out as clearly as possible, as robustly as possible, the gospel that he teaches and preaches. In order that, by being so clear and so robust and so transparent, he might put on the table what it is he is going to be preaching in Spain. So that the Romans, collectively, would get behind that mission. All of Romans is leaning towards mission. Let me say that again. All of this letter filled with juicy doctrine, meaty truths is leaning towards missions. Let me just say this to us as a church. To sit here and absorb truth without leaning towards mission is to not function as a Christian church. A, a Christian church is not just a little, a, a little silo. It's not just a, a, a little filling place where we come and we just absorb and absorb and absorb. It, it's not a place where we just come and, and spend time with one another. It's a place where we come to be filled with God's truth and to experience that unity in God's truth in order that we might be a part of this mission this great mission, it must always be leaning towards the glory of Christ through the obedience of faith among all the nations. That is what a Christian church must be about. That is what Four Corners Church must be about. So we see that first. He wants to gain their support for his mission to Spain. But second, in addition to getting mission support, Paul genuinely wants to spend time with these believers. He genuinely wants to be with them. He doesn't just want to drop in to Rome, get some cash, and get to Spain. That's his ultimate goal. That's his priority because the gospel drives him. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. That's what he must do. That's his highest desire. But within that, couched within that, is this genuine desire to see and know and be with these believers in Rome. To see them in passing in order to enjoy their company for a while. As he says in verse 24. To come in the fullness of, of the blessing of Christ as he says in verse 29 chapter 1 verses 11 and 12 for i long to see you that i may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith both yours and mine paul has many friends there friends people he just knows well and likes his friends And we see this from chapter 16. We get a sense Paul has many friends there in Rome, but his desires are not merely social. He's not just interested in going there to see his buds. He's not just interested in getting there to see his friends. That's not it. Paul wants to spend time with these believers so that all of them may grow in Christ. That's his reason for his strong desire. He wants to see all of them, Paul himself, with them, mutually grown up in Jesus Christ. So I just want to ask you this. Are your church relationships merely social? Are you using the church as a social club, your gospel community group, the ministries in the church, Merely as a social club. Got some friends. Or are you invested deeply in the spiritual growth of one another? Are we just hanging out? No. We're Christians. This is not a social club. This is a place where we come together as one For mutual edification in Jesus Christ. So let me just ask all of us this. When was the last time you had a genuine, spontaneous gospel conversation with your friends here? The people you chat with and talk to regularly. Not merely social, but a desire to see mutual edification. To give and yes, to get. As together we are built up into the head who is Christ. So that's the first major part of Paul's plan. His mission to Spain. And we've seen how that involves the Romans. Now we come to the money for Jerusalem. And for that, let's look at verses 25 to 27. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor (coughs) among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. One of the things that's really striking about these verses is how Paul brings together the spiritual with the physical. Do you notice that? Paul's concern for the spiritual tied together with the physical. You would think that Paul was only focused on preaching the gospel. Based on everything we've just said, based on everything we've read in Romans, that Paul would just say, no encumbrances. Gospel. Preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. Anything else you would think would be a distraction for Paul. But here we see that one of Paul's primary preoccupations, particularly on his third missionary Journey was this collection of money. This collection of money for the impoverished Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. That is one of Paul's great aims. That is one of Paul's great missions. And in fact, think about this. Paul's going to turn around as he's writing from Corinth. He's going to turn around. All he has to do is just hop over a little ways and go to Rome, and then he could go right on to Spain. That's not what Paul's going to do. He's going to turn around and he's going to go all the way back to Jerusalem in order to do this thing and then turn around and come all the way from Jerusalem in a time when going by ship is very dangerous. We, Paul had a shipwreck. We, we know that. It's, it's very dangerous. He's going to turn around and he's going to get on a ship and he's going to go all the way across the Mediterranean to Rome, in order to get to Spain. That's how important this was to the apostle. Gospel proclamation is tied together with care for the physical needs of God's people. Let me say that again. Gospel proclamation is tied together with care for the physical needs of God's people. So let's not be falsely pious in going out And thinking that we just don't have time to care for the physical needs, the real physical concrete needs of real physical people. We see here that that is joined together with gospel proclamation and gospel living. We see that in James chapter 2 verses 15 to 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Nothing, no good in that. 1 John 3:17 But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? In other words, how does the proclaimed gospel abide inside of that heart? The truth of the gospel breeds this kind of concern for the physical needs of people and specifically here, the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. The Christians in Jerusalem have faced intense persecution at this point and famine. And probably the interrelationship of, of these two things, persecution and famine, have left them quite impoverished. In Acts chapter 11, verses 28 to 29, we read that a prophet named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Judea, in particular, is going through a famine. And there is great physical need among the brothers and sisters in Christ in Palestine. So while preaching the gospel, Paul has been busy collecting money. He's preaching. He's raising up leaders. He's he's discipling as he is preaching and as he's ministering in these churches. But also he is collecting money to be sent back to the saints in Jerusalem. And as he describes it here, he has carried out this collection primarily among the Christians in Greece. Macedonia in northern Greece and Achaia in the south. And this would include the Philippians, the Thessalonians, and the Corinthians, and others as well. But here we see these two specific regions singled out, Macedonia and Achaia. Among these believers... Paul has been gathering money to send back to the Jerusalem saints. And we read about this in a couple places. Let me just uh, read a few passages to you. 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 to 4. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So we see Paul referring there to this collection. And then in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, Paul also describes it. So let me read to you from 8, chapter 8 verses 2 to 4 where Paul encourages the Corinthians by the example of the Macedonians. So there Paul is going to say, look, look at what the Macedonians have done. Now, let me just encourage you and spur you on, Corinthians, to do likewise. This is what he says. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance, speaking of the Macedonians, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. In other words, he tells the Corinthians that the Macedonians were practically begging Paul that they might give out of their own lack of of resources, that they might give out of their own affliction in order to relieve the affliction of those in Jerusalem. But here's what's really interesting. You wonder, what's Paul doing here? As the Jewish apostle to the Gentiles, Paul is doing something that very much furthers his mission. So we're not to just understand here simple charity. We're not to just understand here simple giving, simple benevolence. Paul is not only caring for the poor. Notice what he's doing. Paul, in this work of collecting for the saints in Jerusalem is binding together Jews and Gentiles. you see that? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful what he's doing? So it, this, this collection for the saints in Jerusalem is not just a nice thing to do to help out fellow Christians, which is in and of itself valuable, and we just talked about that, but it goes deeper than that. It goes deeper in this way. Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, wants to do what he has written about so much in this very letter to the Romans. He wants to bind together these peoples, Jews and Gentiles. Verse 27. For they were pleased to do it, he says to the Romans, the Macedonians and Achaeans, they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. Paul is saying that these Greek-speaking Christians owe it to the Jewish believers in Palestine to help them out in their time of need. And then he explains why. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Paul wants to do two things here. He wants the Jews to recognize the inclusion of the Gentiles. And of course, as the Jews, they're suffering under the weight of famine, as they are receiving all of this money in the name of Messiah Jesus from these Greeks, people living in Corinth, people living in Philippi, so distant from Jerusalem, as these Jews are receiving this, their minds can't help but to be drawn to Gentile inclusion, Gentiles being included in the people of God. And in that way, Jewish arrogance and Jewish ethnocentric thinking is going to go out the window. That's Paul's intention there for them. But in the same way, we see Paul wanting the Gentiles to humbly understand their indebtedness to the Jewish people as the natural olive tree. So remember chapter 11, verse 17, that Gentiles are a wild olive shoot grafted in and now sharing in the nourishing root of the olive tree, that the Jews who've been broken off are the natural branches broken off of the natural olive tree, but that God in his grace, sheer grace, sheer mercy, has reached out to the Gentiles and grafted the Gentiles into the natural olive tree as he has broken off those natural branches. So in this entire endeavor of collecting money for the saints in Jerusalem, the Gentiles are having to be confronted with the fact, humbly, that they derive from God's blessings to the Jews. Just as Jesus says in John four twenty-two, salvation is from the Jews. And we saw that in Romans 9 through 11. We saw how Romans 9 through 11 ended with this great hope That one day God is going to to bring the people of Israel back to himself. At some point in history, the, the nation, the people as a whole will turn to their Christ. The Jews living on the earth will collectively and largely turn to their Christ. And as Paul says there, all Israel will be saved. This collection, this contribution, this fellowship, and it's interesting, he calls this contribution a fellowship. It's the same word, koinonia. It's the same word we we associate with the unity that exists between Christians, the fellowship in the gospel. He calls this contribution a fellowship and he's he's implying there that this is a very means of binding together. This financial contribution is itself a means of binding the believers together. So what's the result Paul is after? Chapter 15, verse 6. That together they may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, implicitly, Paul wants to remind the Romans of this unity being expressed from Macedonia down to Jerusalem. It's almost as though Paul is saying, hint, hint. It's almost as though Paul is going, nudge, nudge. This is a living, breathing example, Roman Christians, of what I've been telling you in this epistle. So I think that's what Paul is doing implicitly. But explicitly, Paul wants to inform them that after he makes this long trip to carry out this important work, then, then he fully intends to come to Rome for edification and for mission. And so as we end there, let me just ask you this basic question. Is your life about edification and mission? Or is your life just all over the place? You know, we talk about that, our lives being kind of, we are messy people, and our lives are frequently all over the place. But that's not the way it ought to be. Don't be content in the messiness. Seek God's grace that we might become more and more together, that we might become more and more ordered for the glory of God through the gospel of Christ, that we may have less loose ends, that we may have less distraction, that we may have less hindrances and encumbrances in our lives, and that our lives this year Might be filled with these two things, edification and mission. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us this truth today. And Lord, we're so grateful for the example of the Apostle Paul and your grace in his life. We recognize that Paul, like us, was a sinner, that Paul, like us, sinned every day. He was tempted in many ways. And he suffered much and you brought sanctification into his life through much suffering. But Father, we thank you for his example as we see it here. And we thank you for the the truths of living the Christian life that come out from a passage like this. That help us to reorient our thinking, reorient our way of living, our behavior. Lord, would we not be just a secular bunch? Would we not be just a a bunch of folks living just like the rest of the world with a little Jesus on top? Father, we pray that Christ would rule our lives. Entirely, that He and His glory through the salvation of real people would be our one great aim. pray for our church. I pray for Four Corners in this, God, that we would truly be serving on mission. We pray that this year you would help us as a church to begin to reach out more intentionally and more substantively in what we are doing with the truth that you are giving us through your word. And Father, that we would desire to see people come to obey King Jesus. People who now are in utter rebellion against the King, hating his rule, would bow and bend the knee to Christ and confess that this Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory forever and ever. We pray that you would help us, Lord. We thank you for being with us by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.